You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that we would behold you. My hope and prayer this morning is that we would leave, yes, understanding the text better, yes, bowing to obedience to what it says, to what we need to do, but knowing full well that the only way that we can do that is to behold you. Lord, wrestling with this text myself just has revealed my own sin, my own arrogance. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, a broken man who just desires to behold you. So Lord, we need, we need your help. We all need your help. We need your grace. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, <clears throat> that you would help me to get out of the way, and that you would do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a seat. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. What I like to hear. My name's Matt. I know some of you. I would say I know a lot of you, but that's just not true. Um, I oversee our care and counseling department, um, but I love to teach, and so I'm really excited to be here this morning. We're continuing on in Daniel chapter 5, so if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there, uh, or your phone, or if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about arrogance. There it is. Okay? <laughs> it's... I know, right? Yes! Um, We love arrogance. That's why we're talking about it. Uh, So I don't have a clever, like, I've got plenty of stories where I could say, there's this one time when I was arrogant, but we're not going to go there. What I want to do this morning, because up till now, these past uh, four weeks in Daniel, we've talked about, a lot about pride, right? And and pride is, man, it's, it's such an offense to God, right? But there is... Even though we use the terms arrogance and pride interchangeably, they are different. And so let me just take a second to kind of make a differentiation between the two, and then we'll kind of get going. So pride is is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, right? Dictionary definition. And if we look back at Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see that, right? He he was the greatest king of the Babylonian Empire. He had had conquered nations. He had conquered Israel uh, and Judah. And so he, he... well, he, Judah, but he, he had, like, just expanded the empire greatly, right? So he had all of these reasons to be proud, and yet when he became arrogant and proud, God humbled him, as, as Bill taught last week. Uh, arrogance, on the other hand, is having or revealing an exaggerated sense of one's own importance or abilities, right? Not based on things that we've done. We just have this exaggerated sense of self, Right? We, we just think that we're better at what we are than what we are, we're better at what we do than what we are, and there's no real basis for it. Uh, and so this morning, I want to look at a guy who is just really reveling in himself. He's just arrogant, right? And so as we read Daniel 5, um, we'll see this. But, and here, here's where I really want us to, to land. When I say arrogance, I'm not talking about a characteristic trait. It's like I'm not you know, short and buff and arrogant, right? <laughs> Maybe. Um, 
when I say arrogant, I mean an arrogant heart, right? We're arrogant because we have an arrogant heart. That's just the reality of the situation. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Guard your heart. Why? Because it's the wellspring of life. When, when the Bible talks about the heart, it talks about the, the epicenter of our motivation, of our belief, of our thought, and why we do what we do, okay? So I'm not just talking about this one characteristic trait. We have to have a changed heart to no longer be arrogant. And that's the bottom line. So I'm going to try and work through this text, not quickly, but there's, there's a lot to it. Um, so we're going to kind of walk through the text a little bit. I'll stop and, and talk about it a little bit. And then I've got a couple applications points, points at the end. So are we good? Are we ready? Clearly. Are we ready? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. All right, Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousands. So, let's stop there for a minute. Who is Belshazzar? Right? We, good question. Glad you asked. For four chapters, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Right? And all of a sudden, he, Daniel drops this Belshazzar guy in our lap. So, who is he? Well, Nebuchadnezzar died around 562 um, and, and that's when things got really cray-cray in the Babylonian Empire, all right? After uh, Nebuchadnezzar died, there's a lot of crazy names in here. Bear with me. I will probably mess a lot of them up. So uh, he, his son, Evil Merodach, ruled for two years after Nebuchadnezzar. And after Nebuchadnezzar got saved, you had to think, hey, the first conversation with his wife was probably, do you think we could drop that whole evil thing from our son's name? It doesn't have the same appeal. Anyway, never mind. It was worth a shot. All right, after that, uh, he ruled for four years and was murdered by a guy named, or two years, murdered by a guy named Nereglisser, who ruled for four years. He died and was succeeded by a guy named Labashi Marduk, who ruled for two months before he was assassinated and succeeded by a plot that put a guy named Nabonidus on the throne, who ruled for 17 years. Now, 10 of those 17 years, Nabonidus actually ruled from a place called Tama in Arabia, not from Babylon. He, uh, Nabonidus worshiped the, the moon god Sin, can't make this stuff up. He worshiped the moon god Sin, and so he put his uh, son, Belshazzar, as a co-regent in Babylon. Um, Babylon was very pro-Marduk in terms of their god, and so he, uh, Belshazzar ruled as a co-regent in Babylon. Uh, now, Belshazzar was not necessarily inexperienced. Um, a lot of historians believe that he ruled as a, a chief officer in this, the Nereglesser's uh, administration. Um, and some people even think that he was the mastermind behind the plot to get Nabonidus on the throne uh, because he knew that he would not rule from Babylon, right? And so he would have, to, he was a son, of course he would put him on the throne. And so Nabonidus right out of the gate, or Belshazzar right out of the gate, um, we see that he, he's, he's manipulative, he wants himself, right? So this, is, this whole thing takes place about 30 years, 25 to 30 years after uh, Nebuchadnezzar's death. Now. The Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian Empire had been growing substantially uh, during this whole time. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, days before this, they had actually defeated Nabonidus, and so they were at the door of Babylon uh, knocking, and so Belshazzar is having this feast, right? And so why is he having the feast? Quickly, we don't entirely know, but... Uh, Based on the text and, the, and the, what it talks about, I, I think it has to do with the fact that he's arrogant, and he knows Nabonidus had been defeated, and he's having a, a, sim, a sort of a self-coronation party for himself, right? And, and the other side to this, and, and the reason I, I think this is because 
uh, he stands up in front of everybody and starts drinking, right? And, and these kings, they would hold these big parties, but they would usually not be seen, right? It was, a, it was a party that they would bring all their friends in, they would drink a ton, but they would usually not be seen. But Belshazzar's bold. He stands right up in front of everybody and, and leads the procession of drinking, right? So, by the way, he is not worried, right? Babylon has, it, it has great walls. They, they, they cannot be taken. Uh, they have a fresh supply of water. The Euphrates River runs right through the middle of Babylon. They're not worried at all. They have stockpiled food and supplies for years. So the Persians that can't get in, they, they're not worried about it. So let, why not feast, okay? Interestingly enough, two, uh, just to speak to the historicity of the Bible and why it's so dependable, um, two Greek historians have actually said that, outside of the Bible, have said that there was a feast going on in Babylon the night that it fell, right? Very cool stuff. Neither here nor there. Uh, okay, let's get back to the text. Verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold, uh, of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that they had, that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Belshazzar, again, uh, orders that these vessels of gold and silver that had been taken out of the temple, uh, God's temple back in, in uh, Jerusalem, when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered it, he, we know from the book of Ezra that 5,400 uh, vessels of gold and silver were brought from that temple. These were war trophies, right? They weren't short on cups, okay? Belshazzar knew exactly what he was doing, right? This is a, a, an absolute offense to the God of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? He's, he's worshiping and praising his own gods with the vessels of a different God, right? And, and it, this is bold because this people group, these uh, Middle Eastern religions, they were very superstitious. Superstition alone would have probably kept them from drinking out of religious artifacts, and yet here they are partying. Um, so, he knew what he was doing, he knew the old stories, and yet he did it anyway. Okay, so God, of course, being God, looks down at this powerful man, Belshazzar, and says, that's too much for me, I'm out. Right? No, not at all. All right, verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. That's right, it's that funny. Um, so he, he's up and standing in front of his people, right? There's seats for 750 people. With, there's 1,000 of his lords and wives and concubines. And here there's, you know, so you get a general picture if we added 250 people. That's about what's going on, right? And he's sitting in the front drinking. Now, I'm guessing it's kind of like this. Everybody's looking at him, like you guys are looking at me, and all of a sudden, instead of looking at him, everybody's face goes up and goes, you know? Because behind him is this giant hand that just starts writing, right? And it's not like a dude standing back there that's like, oh, we saw his handwriting. No, no, it's just the hand. And it's big enough, apparently, for a thousand people to see it, okay? Terrifying. His, he lost his color. Dude turned as white as could be, like a ghost, right? His thoughts alarmed him, right? And it, so my wife and I, last week, uh, we went to Chicago for our anniversary, and we got to see that play Hamilton. 
which is great. But anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, that's twice I've said that already. All right. Follow me here. Uh, at the end of uh, Alexander Hamilton's life, he gets in this duel with Aaron Burr. I'm not going to tell you what happens, but history, he dies. And so as it's coming at him, uh, he has these thoughts of the people he fought with and his, his uh, friends and his, and his enemies and, and what he should have written and what he didn't write and his wife and his kid. He has all these thoughts running through his head. And I picture this is exactly what's going on with Belshazzar, right? Except that what he saw alarmed him. He probably thought, what have I done? Right? How did I treat these people? Well, maybe I should have done this. Maybe I shouldn't have had God's vessels drinking out of them. That was probably a big no-no, right? So his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Literally, it says, the joints of his loins were loosened. A lot of commentators think it scared the mess out of him. That's all I'm going to say. You get it. All right. So I'm going to fast forward through the text a little bit. This is the point where, just like Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else, they, they scream like a girl, and they go, ah, what is this thing? And they invite their magicians, they're called the Chaldeans, the sorcerers, everybody to come in, and, and they say, look, if you can tell me what this means, then you know, I'll give you, in this case, a big gold chain, purple robe, and make you third in the kingdom. Remember that he's co-regent, so we can't make him second. He's got to make him third. So I'll give you all this power and all this stuff, and of course, their people can't do it, right? They, they don't know what's going on, and that makes them more perplexed, more color gone, and, and just don't know what to do. Well, it says that the queen hears about this, and it's not um, Belshazzar's queen because they're already in the party, right? So it's probably either Nabonidus' wife or maybe even Nebuch- one of Nebuchadnezzar's old wives. We don't exactly know. Um, but the queen hears about this and, and knows, remembers Daniel. And so she walks in and says, hey, there's a guy in your kingdom that can interpret this, right? He did it for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he has the spirit of the holy gods in him. He can do this, okay? And so they, they invite him in, and, and this is what uh, Belshazzar says to Daniel. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah, right? This dude, by the way, white as can be, probably knees still shaking a little bit, right? Possibly other things, and still looks at Daniel and goes, you're one of those exiles that we conquered, right? Right? Like, we, 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 you're one of those? Totally judgmental towards this guy. And so he tells him, if you can tell me what this is, then, you know, well, you can have all these prizes. And so Daniel, who, who's older now, he's probably about 80, he's been kind of semi-retired since uh, Nebuchadnezzar died. You know, you thought he didn't give, give a rip before. Like, he, he's like a more sanctified ornery right now, right? And so he looks at Belshazzar and he says, starting at verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from them. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of the beast, and his dwelling with that of the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. That was last week. This is the most terrifying uh, line in the whole passage to me. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. 
but you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, of gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, uh, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Okay. So Daniel says, hey, remember your ancestor Nebuchadnezzar? Right? God gave him everything. Right? Because at this point, he just saw a giant hand. He doesn't necessarily know it was from Yahweh, right? He might have an idea with the whole vessels thing, but he doesn't know where it came from. Excuse me. So Daniel tells him, God of Israel, right? He gave Nebuchadnezzar everything. And when Nebuchadnezzar acted proudly, he humbled him, right? And that was last week's message. But then he says to him, you knew this, and you did this anyway. You knew this, and you did it anyway. So since that's the case, uh, God sent this hand, and this is what it says. Many uh, means numbered. Your days of the kingdom are numbered. Tekled means weighed, signifying that you've been weighed in the balances of God and found wanting. Right, this is referring to one of those balances that there's a, a standard here, and they've set it on there, and if it balances, it's good. If it doesn't, and he, it does not balance, right? God is the standard. Parson divided your kingdom will be taken from you and given to the guys who are right outside your door. And this is true, right? As we're talking, or as they were talking, uh, the, uh, the Persians were actually diverting into a marsh, the Euphrates River, which lowered the rivers, and they walked right in and took Babylon. Right? This is the last hours of the Babylonian kingdom. Right? Uh, early, when we lo- looked earlier at the giant statue prophecy, this is a transition. Right? This is one of those transitions that night, which is really incredible. So, um, let's keep going real quick. Uh, finish off. 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold that was put around his neck, and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So this was it. Uh, this was the end of the Babylonian kingdom. And, and again, kind of the arrogance. Um, he actually gives Daniel the robe, the gold, makes him third in the kingdom, which legitimizes what Daniel said, which I think is very interesting. So there's our text. Um, let's get three kind of application points. Listen, two of them are hard. One of them's not. So I'm just going to let you, again, we're talking about arrogance, so I want to give you a little heads up, but it's worth listening, okay? First thing that an arrogant heart does, an arrogant heart uh, diminishes our fear of the Lord. An arrogant heart diminishes our fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? Uh, One of the great reformers, Martin Luther, actually wrestled with this very thing, right? And he came to the conclusion with using two kind of words, these two ideas, There's a servile fear, which is a dreadful anxiety one has for a clear and present danger represented by another person, right? So think think a malicious master, a harsh slave driver, an abusive spouse, a captor, an executioner, somebody who, when you see them, you tremble because there's imminent danger, right? That's not uh, what we're talking about here. The filial fear, which is a Latin word meaning derived from a son or a daughter, this is what we're talking about. It's a fear that a child has for his father. And this is referring to a, a good father, right? A, a good father, right? right? Like, so my five-year-old Olive, 
when she sees me walk in, she doesn't say, there's the, the short buff guy that's going to like, you know, mess me up. That's all right. Uh, no, she doesn't. She doesn't lay it in, in her bed at night and tremble that, I, that she's about to be hurt by me, okay? But what she does do is she understands that in our home, there are rules. There are rules, and when she disobeys them, there are consequences, right? And, there, and, and that's the way it should be, right? Because I want to teach her. I want her to know how much I love her and care for her and desire for her to know the Lord and to be a, a member of society that can function well. And so there are rules in our home, and when she breaks them, there are consequences. And the fear of those consequences should help her and encourage her obedience, right? And that's what we're talking about here, right? It's a good, healthy fear that encourages uh, obedience and right behavior. So why is the fear of the Lord important for us, right? What does the Bible say about that? Well, first it says the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1-7. Jesus had a fear of the Lord. And when Jesus does things, we want to do them too, right? That's the whole idea. Isaiah eleven two, prophecy about Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3 says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So if it's his delight, it should be our delight. Nehemiah 11, 1 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So why is it our delight? Well, it keeps us from being disobedient. It keeps us from being disobedient. Romans eleven nineteen 19 through 21 says this, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Remember, God hates sin. He hates arrogance. And Hebrews 12 talks about God being a consuming fire. Right? We forget that. Is God love? Absolutely. He is the, the, he, the essence of love. He is love. Right? But he is also a consuming fire against sin. Okay? So we should have a right understanding and fear of God's punishment and judgment against sin. Now, Belshazzar has no fear of the Lord, right? And Daniel, Daniel says, your, your hand has been against him, right? But our delight should be in him and the fear of him because it keeps us obedient. It acknowledges that his ways are better than our ways, right? And so what happens if we have a diminished fear of the Lord? Well, it, it makes us... Delight not in him, but in created things, in idols, in ourselves, right? And, and, and what it really says is that we believe that whatever judgment God has isn't severe enough to get me to stay or to obey, right? And we may not say that intellectually. We're like, no, no, of course there's the, the judgment's too much for me to disobey. Well, then why are we disobeying? Why are we disobeying? I, I disobey. And at third, we flee the safety of refuge that is Christ, and we try to make, take on the world in our own strength. And the more we do this, the harder our heart becomes, and the more resistant it becomes to obedience and to change. Now, I want to talk for a minute about uh, sanctification, right? Big, fancy word that basically means the, the change that we go through to, towards holiness, right? And, and the reason the fear of the Lord should, should 
we should love it and desire it is because we should also love to be changed into Christ's likeness. Romans 8, 29 says that we've been, uh, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, right? People use this as an election verse and all these things, sure. But the point of this passage is that from the time you're saved, your destination has been predetermined. And what is that destination? To be conformed to the image of Christ, okay? So what I tell people is, you know, most people get saved and then they think, okay, now I'm saved and there's the straight path. It's more like this. You get saved, you look up, and there's a giant mountain in front of you. And on top of that mountain is Christ's likeness, right? That's more of what the Christian life is like, okay? Now, that shouldn't make us afraid, but it should make us realize the gravity of what we're pursuing, okay? So what I usually tell people is there's two ways up the mountain. You can walk up the mountain or you can get dragged up the mountain, but you're going up the mountain. If, you're, if your destination has been predetermined, you're going up the mountain, right? And so when we fear the Lord what we, and we walk up the mountain, we start to understand that, look, it's easier when I walk. I can see the path. I'm not afraid of the things that are coming from either side. When I'm getting dragged up the mountain, then I don't like it. And in fact, I start to blame God for it, okay? But that, so, so having a right fear of the Lord and understanding that, look, if our, if our destination is up there, I want to go up there. And when I walk up there, it's a whole lot easier than getting dragged up there, right? So listen, this morning some of us I know are suffering. I, I, I meet with people all the time that are suffering. Sometimes, and, and we're not talking about suffering from, from outside uh, circumstances that we have no control over. Some of us are suffering because we've been arrogant and we've looked God in the face and we have said, your way is not better than my way. I'm going to do it my way. Right? And if that is you this morning, I want to just encourage you, encourage you, and plead with you to repent. His ways are better than our ways. Right? He, 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 he knows the right path to get towards Christ's likeness, and he wants to lead us there, and he's drawing us to him through that. And the more we obey, the more we come under his understanding and, and rule and, and follow his ways and become obedient. Actually, John 14, 21 says, the more that we obey his, what he has told us to do, the more we get Christ, right? We start to delight in the fear of the Lord. We don't want the consequences that come from sin. Now, listen, if you're a believer here this morning, I'm not talking about damnation, right? Like, if Christ saves you, the ju- God still hates sin, and there's still consequences for sin, right? You will still suffer consequences for sin. I'm not talking damnation, I'm talking real life, uh, in this lifetime, consequences for sin, okay? So when the more we follow God, the more we understand that his ways are better than our ways, the more we avoid the consequences of sin, right? Like my daughter, the five-year-old, does, doesn't like to get consequences. I hope not. I'm not teaching her very well if she does, right? But because I love her, they're there to help her learn and to grow. And that's, that is having a right fear of the Lord helps us understand that. Does that make sense? follow that? Okay. Second point, an arrogant heart causes us to be judgmental. Belshazzar is quick to associate Daniel with the exiles, clearly looking down on them, right? He's, aren't you one of those exiles that we conquered and brought over, right? And and so why does he do this? An arrogant heart is completely devoted to me, not me, but itself, Right? They're the, the original me monster. Okay? 
if someone isn't like me, then I don't, I don't like them, right? And the more they're like me, the more I like them, right? And this often happens before we even know people. We, we judge people on stereotypes all the time. If you don't believe me, I just want to do a little experiment. Everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. I'm watching. I can see you all. All right. I don't want you to raise your hand. It's not one of those. But I just want you to think, what is your initial response in your heart of hearts to the stereotypes that I'm about to say? Okay? This is old school. A SCAD student with pink hair. All the college kids are like, yes. Two men or two women holding hands. A homeless man pedaling on the street. A single mom. A refugee. A man you know has committed adultery. A former felon. Okay, so now not all of those are rooted in sinful behavior, right? But yet we see, we have these images in our head, we have our stereotypes, some we like, some we don't like, and man, if you're one of those people that every single one of those people, you were just like, man, God, I just love them. I just love them. I want to go out. I want to care for them. Man, praise the Lord, because that's, that's not me, right? My, I, my heart has been revealed so many times as I've been studying this text. But there's a subtlety in the, in, as a Christians, too, right? There's a subtlety, because we like to play the comparison game. Hey, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that girl. And that, my friends whom I love, is arrogance. Right? That's arrogance. And this is why the condition of our heart is what's so important to Christ and God who is changing us. Matthew 5, 28 says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. James 4, 1 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. How many murderers we got in here tonight? How many adulterers? Right? Listen, as long as we are in the flesh, we have more in common with the homosexual, with the adulterer, with the murderer than we do with Christ. Okay? As long as we are in the flesh, this is our plight. This past weekend, uh, when we were in Chicago, we, my wife and I went to the top of the Jan- John Hancock building. It's 96th floor. We went to take pictures of, you know, the little ants below us. Um, and it was also Pride weekend. Big pride parade, lots and lots of flags, okay? And we get to the top, and, and we're clearly trying to take pictures, and this guy comes up to us. And listen, I didn't have a conversation with him, and this is, I'm just revealing my heart. Based on the flag he wore around his shoulders, based on the blue makeup he had on his face, based on his overall general demeanor, I think he was celebrating that weekend, Okay? I'm not, I'm not even trying to be funny. I just think that, that was what I assumed about him, okay? I'm just being clear. And what I found in my heart was that I was, you know, listen, I'm not saying approval of what he, the, the, he may or may not be doing. What I'm saying is what I found myself is repulsed by him and not the sin he was committing. Right? Like, my heart should grieve for this young man who is confused and, and I don't know all the things that he's doing. I know myself, 
I know the things I think about on a daily basis. I know the things I thought about on the way to church this morning that make me equally as condemnable as this young man. Right, and that leads to our last point. That God's grace is greater than our arrogance. It's greater than our arrogance. Again, the reality is that God hates arrogance. It is an offense to him. And it is offense to him that is this wrath against it will be eternal for those outside of Christ. But here's the good news, right? Because there is good news. Praise God, there's good news. That Jesus, long, long, long before any of us were here, decided that he was gonna deal with sin. It's the first promise of scripture when he tells the enemy, there will be one, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And this is what happened. Christ came down and lived as a human, just like us, just like us, and lived it, did it perfectly. You know, we're, we're, we think about the perfect behaviors. He thought perfectly. He was motivated perfectly, right? And then he died. He was murdered, and he rose again. And why did he do it? He did it for you, and he did it for me. Was the pain of the cross bad yet? unbearable, but it wasn't because of the nails. It was because God's consuming fire wrath against our sin was poured out onto Christ in those moments. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, his grace to us is forgiveness in Christ we are adopted as his sons and daughters. Now we, he becomes our refuge, our joy, and we fear him because it keeps us close to him. And this is the piece that I think I find myself missing all the time and where my true arrogance is, is really located. We try and put our arrogance to death and we pursue holiness, right? So, so there's a remedy to arrogance. Right, there's an actual remedy to arrogance. Let's think back to last week's passage, what Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So the first piece of this remedy to arrogance is repentance. I think, Lord, thank you for your grace. Yes, yes, yes. But even as believers, we need to be practicing repentance. We need to be practicing, it's a turning from, from our sin, right? That's what the, the meaning, it's the turning, 180 going the other way. We need to be repenting of our sin of arrogance, right? And then the second piece is that we need to pursue. And this again is where my arrogance lies. I, I'm not gonna say that about you, this is where my arrogance lies. I often forget this piece, I do, right? We pursue Christ and his holiness, right? If we know our destination is to be conformed to the image of Christ, that's what we need to be going after, right? So we actively work to put sin to death, right? And, and listen, a changed heart is a work of the spirit, yes, but we also have a role to play in this, right? Ephesians 4 tells us this, right? That there's this old self, the, the way we were, we need to work actively to put that off, to put that to death, and we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. What is that? It's this. Right, we learn what Jesus says. We learn what God has told us. You wanna hear God speak? Read the Bible. 
You wanna know what he says? Read the Bible, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And when we know what God says, when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we put that on. All right, so we put off the old self, we be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we put that new self on. And as we do this, there's this beautiful dance that happens between the Holy Spirit and us, where we get to be convicted, where we get to be led by, and then we get to put on what he's telling us to do. And the more we do this, the more we learn, wow, this path, it's better. It's better than getting dragged up the mountain, right? Because sometimes the mountain's just hard. So it's always easier to be walking through it than to be getting dragged up it. So we repent, we pursue, and then we worship, right? We worship because the good news of the scripture is that he is faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins, right? He is, he is his grace, we pursue holiness, and when we fail, his grace is greater than our failure. Praise God for that. We worship him. We, 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 ought, we should pray repenting of our sin and then thanking God for forgiving us, right? We need to be pursuing holiness and actively putting arrogance to death, right? We need to be pursuing that hard, and when we pursue it, we fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him because he is faithful to forgive us and he's faithful to change us. Even our arrogance can't separate us from the love of Christ, right? There's nothing, the Bible says, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, And so let us be like Nebuchadnezzar this morning. Let us raise our eyes to heaven, bless God, and praise and honor him. Amen? God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace that changes us. Thank you, God, that you have seen fit to save us. Lord, we are not humble. We are not those who actively seek to put our sin to death as often as we should. Lord, you've called us to pursue holiness, to be holy as I am holy. And Lord, help us this morning to recognize sin more clearly and behold you, God, and be transformed by you, God. Thank, thank you, God, for, for saving us, for changing us, for transforming us, for convicting us. But most of all, God, thank you for Christ who died for our sins, who died for our arrogance. And I just pray that you would help us this morning to worship you with a full heart, knowing, knowing full well that you love us and that you are a good father and that fearing you is, is safety and that we should delight in that, God. I pray that you would help us. In Christ's name, amen.